0: Over twenty years ago, I uh, I did um, I did a whole series on going through the twelve disciples. What were they like? As you know, um, they all had different personalities. Jesus taught them collectively, but the genius of his teaching methodology is this: that he also taught them individually, with different personalities. Yeah. The impulse of Peter, I'll take anybody on. All mouth, no action. And then he's the first to say, I don't know, I don't know. He hated himself for that, right through his life. He hated himself for that sentence. That the time when the Lord needed him, he turned away. Fear of men rather than fear of love of God. You get the sort of the zealot, Simon the zealot. A bit of a fighter, a trained assassin, trained with the Sakkari. Used to have a a special blade that was very good at cutting people's throats, walking behind them. The Romans hated him. And uh, they were Jewish zealots. And yet he was saved. Amazing. And Jesus, with a spiky personality, had to deal with him at times. And then you've got this man, the pessimist, who became convinced Thomas. Thomas. You know what every week people say to me, pastor? I'm Peter. I'm James. I'm young John. You'd be surprised how many people said, I'm also Thomas. Thomas. Which is incredible. But what they didn't realize, that every week I was preaching through this, I was thinking, this is me everyone this is me oh and i'm like this again this is me and maybe you're like this as well just going to look at thomas today often referred to as doubting thomas you know what i think that is grossly wrong it really is because all the disciples all of them not one of them and the women not one of them expected jesus to rise from the dead they all doubted just that this guy shared his heart more than others that was the issue he revealed what he really thought and therefore he's been labeled over the years and i've been in church and i've been christian 52 years i've heard many sermons and the man in the front has gone oh we're going to be talking about doubting thomas i've cringed about that for many years and um, and some of the men in my church that were preaching have said don't use the word and thomas ever again because they all doubted That's the issue. And we all have doubts and fears at times, and we all have a broken heart at times. You know why? Because that's life. He's often referred to as Doubting Thomas, but I believe it's totally unfair to label, and to place this, what was, and I'd like to prove to you, a very loving, sensitive, tender hearted man of all the apostolic band, a man who really did love Jesus, and was willing to overcome his natural inner fears and battles. And these are the biggest battles anybody can go through in life. Health problems, that's a battle. Fighting for your life with a terminal illness, that is a battle. It's a battle to the death. But the biggest battles that people go through are not the physical, they're up here and in here. They're the biggest battles that we always have, all of us. That's Evelyn, but we hardly ever touch on him. But he overcome this, overcome these inner fears, emotions, disappointments, that many of us don't, that bring us down in life. And people go into depressions or whatever because they can't get over the knocks in life. That's the issue. He did this because for one reason, he loved the Lord over his fear, his anxiety, his disappointments. His love for him was greater than his, his downfall, if you like. He is a man very much underrated after the apostolic band, often misunderstood out of all the apostles, yet such a loving, sensitive man that he was a natural warrior. Some of us are natural warriors, I think, Man, this is my opinion after being on the planet for 65 years, I think more men are warriors than women. Just that we, we tend to hide it a bit more. We internalize it more, but I could be wrong with that one. We were talking on the way in the car and there's one particular pastor I know and his wife, an uh, American, his wife was uh, asked by the women in the church 20 questions. And she said he just, he has a gift of not worrying. I've met him a number of times. He's just level. Whatever happens in life, he doesn't get massively excited. And when things go wrong in life, he just says, Oh, that's God's providence. Just trust him. Let's go with it. I wish I could be like that. I'm not like that. I'm not made like that. Thomas was not made like that. He was a natural worrier. His wife said, I wish he would worry now and again. I wish he would have some reaction with him. He said, But he's just this particular pastor, he just. Doesn't worry. That is nature. It's a gift. It's a massive gift. But Thomas was not like that. He was a worrier, a real worrier. But it doesn't mean to say he wasn't a lover of Christ. Just the opposite. It would be it would be more than it would be more than a frustration to those who are natural optimists to look at Thomas and say, "Oh, he's always on a down. He's always worrying. Give it a blow." while he would look at them and say, you're naive, you're not in the real world. You're, you're idealist. You've got to get real. It's got to get real. Now, he would always expect the worst to happen in life. He was that half full guy, glass half full guy. But you know what? Very often in his life, as we'll see, the worst did happen, which over-emphasized again and reinforced again the fact that things go wrong in life all the time. And therefore, he was losing his joy. Easy to surrender your joy. Nobody can take our joy, but we can surrender the joy through circumstances or even satanic attacks. Now, I don't know if you've ever studied psychology. I had to do it many years ago. Did I like it? No, I didn't. But I had to do it. But believe it or not, there's a, a thing called a chisholm effect. I don't know if you've ever mentioned this or heard this before. If you haven't, then you've not missed an awful lot, but some aspects of it are, are interesting. And it's this, it's the basic laws of frustration, mishap, and delay. Now, let me, let me give you first year test, test in this one, see if you pass and be undergraduates here, or maybe graduates. Here's the first law, it's this. If anything can go wrong, it, it will, one out of one. There's a second law of the Chisholm effect, is this. When things are going well, something will go wrong. You're there. You're actually there. And the third one is this. No matter how many times you explain to somebody in a group, there's always one who's not listening. you graduates. Well done. You've now got a degree in the Chisholm effect. That's true. There's actually a law in this one, a measurable law. Pessimism rather than doubt seems to be Thomas's besetting sin. Coupled with being over anxious at times, which we can all be at times, just we can get so self-obsessed with things and we, we start to think and the problem gets bigger and bigger and bigger, bigger than what it ought to be in our lives. In reality, he was known as the Victor Meldrew of the grumpy old men. It's really sad that my son calls me Victor. He's 40 now, and he says, Dad, you are the Victor. He calls me Victor, that's what his nickname in the house. And I don't think I am, but he thinks I really am Victor. I say, I say to him, this is just life. I thought, just like Victor Meldrew, things can go wrong. But he's more optimistic. He says, no. I think he's and I, I'm exactly the same as Thomas in that sense. We're just going to look at three instances that changed Thomas's life. And maybe you're one of these believers that, like Thomas, go from a pessimist to an optimist and in the middle starts to appear joy on the horizon, no matter what your circumstances. The first one is in John 11. Can you turn to John 11 with me? John chapter 11. The context is Jesus is in the process of leaving Jerusalem, the metropolitan elite of the day, the pharisa- pharisaical stronghold. And at that point, if you were deemed to be talking to Jesus or have any sympathy with Jesus, Jesus you were deemed to be unpopular and you could be like him, treated like him. He'd already known, three months, six months into his ministry, they're already planning to kill him. By this point, they wanted to kill him no matter what this is just before the crucifixion. Not long before this at all. In this passage of scripture and the the hostility is growing, you can feel hostility growing in a crowd. You can. And whatever you say will be taken the wrong way. That's what happens. He's already said in chapter and verse 30, if you notice, I and my Father are one. There you have the hypostatic union, don't you? Fully God and fully man, he is saying, as a man, I am God. The Jews knew this would be blasphemy if it wasn't true. What was their reaction? Thirty one tells you, stone him. John chapter, John chapter ten. They're going to stone him. <clears throat> what does Jesus then do? He realizes his time in Jerusalem at this point is over. They're not going to listen, and they're probably going to kill him. It's danger zone. What does he do? It's time, it time is not right to be crucified. He moves out and he goes to a different part of the country. And you see this from 39 and 40. Therefore, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. Where did he go to? He went beyond the Jordan to a place where John was baptizing the first, and he stayed. Why did he go there? Because there was plenty of John's followers who had given support and look after him. That's what it was. It was a safe zone. That's what it was. The green zone that the Americans keep talking about. A place where he could rest. And then look what happens then. The pop, when the population heard this, they came out to demand that he preach them. They knew, totally different from Jerusalem, they wanted to kill him. This, This, these people say, tell us a word of eternal life. John's preaching and melted their heart towards the Savior, which is fantastic. And look at verse 42. Many people became Christians that day. It's staggering. So it goes from one extreme to other: rejection to utter love and desire for him. And then, you turn down your over page to chapter 11, and you know this passage so well, But a few days before, not long before the crucifixion, and you can feel the tension in the air, and we open at verse, chapter 11, verse one onwards, as you're glancing down, and there we have a family in crisis. You have two young women and a man, a brother. As far as we know, the only brother. And therefore, the only breadwinner in those days of the family, in reality. No social security, no state aid. If you, if you didn't work, and you certainly didn't have a man, it was very difficult. And that's why an awful lot of women as you saw a bit, a bit early on in John's Gospel, would turn to prostitution or whatever to, to actually earn a living. It was very difficult for women to earn a living in Jewish society. There weren't many openings for them. Uh, you become a slave or you become prostitute or you can basically starve. Here, there's two women here and they're losing their brother. He's dying. Uh, we've all been there when people, we've lost loved ones. And how many of us have said, Lord, help you. We've begged him. We've begged him. We've all been in that desperate situation, that sickening situation, where you see the loved one just start to fade before your very eyes, and you love them and don't want them to go. You don't want them to suffer. They, don't forget, in these days, there's no anesthetics. There's no painkillers. Pain so maybe he was suffering as well. And he's fading rapidly, and they send to him. They sent to the Lord. He's not too far away. They sent him. The two sisters, Martha and Mary, sent him, Lord, come now. Come now. Come now. And what does he do? He does what he does with us. He delays. He delays. But it's not always a denial. But sometimes it is a no. But this is not for... Lazarus's glory, this is for the Lord's glory. This day, this denial, and this delay is for for him at this point. Jesus, they knew that Jesus was special, they knew he could help, they had the faith to to help, but it delayed despite the desperate pleas of these women. Look at verse eight very quickly. Disciples get worried when Jesus says, well, he's only asleep, but we're going to go anyway. And you can hear the disciples thinking, why are we going back to just a mile and a half, two miles away from Jerusalem? When everybody hates us, we just about escaped through the skin of our teeth last time. We just about got away before they started stoning all of us. And he wants to go back there. What on earth is going on here? This is not a good situation. If he's asleep, Lord, then he'll just wake up and get better, and everybody be hunky dory, and we can stay out the way, out of the way. We won't get troubled by anybody. Let's lie low for a while. This is not a good time to get sentimental, Lord, especially when our lives are on the line here by the local authorities. Look at verse 11 and 12, if you can see down there quickly. Verse 11 and 12. Well, he's asleep. What's the problem? That's what they're basically saying. Fear and understandable apprehension. Take the disciples and they just failed to listen to the Lord. And therefore, they continued to try and dissuade him, don't go there, don't go In verse 16. We're introduced, they're on the way there, and then we're introduced to Thomas for the first time. Do you see this? And then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we might die with him. In other words, oh, let's go then. You, you, You can hear the sarcasm and the cynicism in his voice. Oh, let's go there, we're all gonna die. Why not go back to the place where everybody hates us? That's a good idea, isn't it? That's a really good idea. That's a, the best idea he's ever had in three years. Let's go back. Let's go back and all stone us. Hey, that's a good birthday present. You can understand him, can't you? He? He's the one that speaks out. The others feel that, no doubt, because ordinary men. But Thomas is the one who's more vocal about it. Natural fear. I know this. A pessimist can hardly wait for the future so he can look back with regret. A good definition of a pessimist. A pessimist can hardly wait for the future so he can look back with regret, and that's precisely what Thomas is about. This pessimism is of a heroic nature though, but he was willing to do what he thought would be his death sentence, and he was willing to follow the Lord no matter how he felt inside, and that's easier said than done because very often, we live by our emotions rather than principle. We Live by personality over principle. And he was willing, with all these fears, this worry, this anxiety, panic attacks going on in his mind, he was willing to say, okay then, okay then, we'll follow him, we'll follow him. See, it's not easy being a pessimist, and every step he must have been thinking, you know, I can't believe I'm doing this. Why am I following this bloke? Why am I following this man? I can't believe him to I can't believe him, listen to him. Every atom in his body must have been saying, run, ignore the saviour, don't listen to him. And that's with me and you, and we do exactly the same. But every step he must have been going, okay, then I'll have to do it. I'll have to do it. I'll have to do it. You see, it's not easy being a pessimist, you know. It really isn't. Ask any pessimist, it's hard work being a pessimist. You struggle with those who are eternal optimists, who annoyingly say, Romans eight twenty eight. Everything's going to work okay for those who love God in the end. Don't worry about it. You hate it when people say that. That's what you don't want to hear. Because you, you want them to say, "Well, I'm not quite sure this is right," you know. It's hard going. A pessimist says, "I'm going to die no matter what." And you know what? You are a load of cranks, and you don't have a clue of the, what the situation is really like. Didn't you see the Jews? Didn't you see the Pharisees? Didn't you see them going for the stones? Are you mad or something? Okay, we're going along. But can't you see what's going on here? Live in reality. I respect Thomas for this. Because he had the courage to lay aside his natural pessimism because for one reason. He loved this 33-year-old man more than he loved himself. We naturally love ourselves. We naturally care for ourselves. Uh, We naturally seem to put ourselves first in nearly everything in life. This man was willing to die horrific death being stoned. Although he feared, and though he was scared, although he was panicking, and the thing that drove him on was something deep in his soul. It was love for him, love for him. This was what was going on in Thompson's heart. It's better to die with him than to live without him. I think this has been the battle cry for nearly every martyr that's been burnt at the stake, every person that's been tortured to death. For last year alone 365,000 Christians around the world have gone missing, been executed, or been arrested. 365,000 people. If you go to Christian Watch, I think the 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 fact, and they just get off everything if they say I deny Him. The fact that people follow, no matter what the fears, butterflies, sickliness, natural worry, being scared of being hurt, scared of being in pain, no matter what, they say it's better to die with Christ, being faithful to Him than to live without him, with a conscience that I can't live with. Conscience I can't live with. I've seen many people die over the years. I've lost count of the last 45 years, I've lost count. But I know this, the deathbed is no place to have a guilty conscience or regrets. It really isn't. That's not the place to have it. But if you, if you, if you die of that regrets, ladies and gentlemen, you and I have got to be able to live without regrets, and not just living in God's sight, but living <coughs> with yourself. No matter what anybody says of you, you've got to live with yourself before God. That's the issue. Thomas was like this. He had no illusion that following Jesus would be difficult. You know that passage where Jesus says, in, in Luke 9:23, "You must deny yourself, take up your cross and come." Every time you walked into a, a, Roman, a, a Jewish city. You would see children as young as five hanging naked on crucifixes. Oh, the Romans killed children as well. Men, women, and children. They hung them naked. He knew what that meant. We've lost that because we've not seen anybody executed by crucifixion, which came from Babylon 2,000 years before. He knew When Jesus said you must take up your cross, he's saying even the worst situation, the worst death, with loneliness and isolation. You must grasp this if you want to follow me. You must do this if you are to follow me. Thomas knew that. He knew that. They all knew it. They didn't respond when Jesus said that. Why? Because it was a chill down the soul. Nobody wants to die like that. We all want to die comfortably in bed if you have to die. But it says, deny yourself. Now this denial is not all oh, okay, I'll do it. This denial is saying, I'll do it with joy. And you can only do it with joy if you have have love for him over yourself. That's what it means. It's not just denial, okay, begrudgingly do it. It's denial, I will do this, I want this. If I have to go through it, I'll have to go through it. But he is worth it. The bottom line, he is worth it. Thomas knew this. But his love was stronger than his doubts. And that's the key to all the doubts, isn't it? Your love is stronger than your doubts. And this is a good definition of what maybe faith is. Just a quick lesson to learn. Something of Thomas's personality is a, is a man who is naturally cautious, a good poker player, chess player, reluctant at times, yet overcome this reluctance because of his love for the man before him. What stops you? Witnessing to people at times, which you've all done, is that your love for you is stronger than the love for him. Or your fear, what men might think of you, is stronger than what he thinks of you. That's why we don't witness to families so much, our friends, our colleagues. It's the whole, the whole fear factor. And the fear factor is, it, is, is attributed also to doubts. We doubt him. And that's why we're fearful. The next instance is John 14. My dear friends, I read this passage to my old dad when he died in Garston Memorial Hospital (coughs) 25, 27 years ago. He was lying there and I read this to him. I said, Dad, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the, the way you know. You know, there's a lady in our church who was one of the last Muller orphans in Great Britain. She was in her 90s, she was 96, Her name was Pat Smith. She was saved, she had a very full life. She rejected Christ very early on in her life. She lived a very full life, let me tell you, even for those days after the war, she lived a very full life, to say the least. She was my first convert in my ministry when I was a young pastor. Not long before she passed away and I took a funeral, she was sitting there, I preached on this passage of scripture. And she was sitting there alone in the church. The church was actually packed out. And she was sitting alone at the back, just looking down. And um, deep in prayer, deep in contemplation. And she knows she's coming to the end of her life. She knows her body starts to fade. And I went over and sat next to her. And I said, how are you doing, sweetheart? And she said, oh, those words are so lovely, aren't they? They're so precious to me in my father's house are many mansions. I'm gonna prepare a place for you. I'm just thinking about this." And then she turned around and said these words. She said, "'Pastor, do you think the Lord would have a little room for me somewhere in this mansion?' What beauty is that? I've one to some, some of the greatest preachers in the world. I've, I've known some great preachers, some great Christians. You know what? I've never seen such tender humility with this woman like the widow's mind. She was saying, I know I'm not much, but do you think the Savior that will love me the likes of me and have been with them forever? Amazing. Amazing. Such tenderness. I was really moved. I told my elders this one. They knew it. They all based out crying. She never raised herself. She was never in front of the church, and yet great spirituality. And she loved him. She just loved him. But though she had nothing in life, amazing. This passage shows us something of the profound love of Thomas. He had for his saviour. Three main characters are mentioned here: Thomas, Philip, and Jesus. And we're going to just focus on Thomas and Jesus. That conversation, that dialogue with them, and the context is Jesus is there on a night he's betrayed. As you know, John chapter one to thirteen covers three years. John. John 14 to 17 is one night in the upper room. Amazing things went on there. Jesus is looking at all these men, and all of them. Judas is gone at this point. He's gone. He's gone to where he is today. No way out, Judas. You're there, my friend. That's it. He's looking at these 11 men, and all of them, all of them, bar one, the youngest, the 19-year-old John, who wrote this, this, this gospel. All of them, the big strong Peter, the big guy that will attack anybody. All of them will deny him. Not one except John will get the foot across with his mother and some women. All of them will walk out on him in his hour of need. All of them will disassociate themselves from him out of fear of being crucified. All of them will do this. And yet he's saying to them, I want you with me in heaven. Don't worry, don't worry. What a saviour he is. So this is the night before he's betrayed he's going to be arrested about an hour and a half time two hours time in the garden of gethsemane and that's where we are he's told them he's going to leave them for three days they don't have a clue what that means that's gone whoo right over them what does this mean we're on the crest of a wave we've got hundreds of thousands of people following him and wherever we go tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of people come cancers multiple cirrhosis diabetes heart problems guilt Whatever they've done. All come up with different needs, touching him, begging him, asking him questions. We're on the crest of a wave and he's saying he's gonna die. The three. It's joking. This is not gonna happen. Thomas took this really bad. He took it really bad. You know, because some of us don't like goodbyes. Some of us are not good at goodbyes. Can I just say this? This mansion that Jesus has mentioned is a place where the word goodbye is banished forever. There are no doctors in this mansion. There are no nurses. There's no hospitals. There's no disease. There never again be a funeral. They'll never again stand over a loved one's grave with tears. That will go forever. There'll never be any pastors like me. No need for that, because you've got the great shepherd there. No no, no other time will there be any other need. No other waving. Heaven is a place of welcome and well done. That's what heaven's like, because he's there. Heaven would be nothing without him being there. He's the center of everything. And I guarantee your heart and my heart will burst with joy that we've yet to reach anywhere near the height in this life as soon as we see him. And then, I know there's no marriage there, but I'd love to stand by my wife. But you? I'd love to stand by loved ones who've gone before me. I'd love to do that. And then we've got eternity with him, haven't we? That's what Jesus is offering here. And they can't see it. It's going right above their head here. Look at verse five. John, Thomas speaks out. Thomas speaks out. Here we see an honest pessimist. In essence, he's saying, you know what, it would have been better if we would have just died in John 11. It would have been better if would have died in Bethany outside Jerusalem. It would have been better it was all going on there. And he's lifted us up again, and he's dropping us again, and he's leaving us again. And Thomas didn't just want to be separated from Jesus. And there's no crime in that, is there? The curse of all apostasy is that they throw back in God's face his greatest gift. Thomas was the opposite. He just didn't want to be apart from Jesus. Even three days was enough. It's really interesting that Thomas, all Thomas' fears came true. Jesus, that very night, had to leave them as he was arrested by probably about a thousand men. Big odds, isn't it? And Thomas's natural pessimism proved right. And this only underlined and emphasized, you can't trust anybody. It, they all leave you, they all leave you in the end. And only served to fuel his natural tendency to always look on the bleaker side of life. And this served to explain the next and final instance, and I'll go quicker on this one, where Thomas was, was already realizing he's brokenhearted. The biggest thing going on with this man at this point when Christ left them, is that he was broken hearted. And then John 20, we read it out before. Turn to John 20, we'll just close with this. We come to the final picture, we arrive at the upper room and all the windows are firmly closed and someone rather special appears. Although all the windows and doors are closed. And if he's God, he can do anything. It's as simple as it's Just how big is your God to you, that's the issue. And verse 26, look, the Lord appeared to the remaining ten disciples. Don't forget Judas, he's gone by this point. He's in the place where he is, as I speak right now. Thomas has gone for an eight-day walkabout. There's ten disciples there at this point. He walks in the room, and what does he say? Like he also says when he stop, when he calms a storm. He says these beautiful words. Arrhenia, says in the Greek peace be unto you, well-being, spiritual serenity, trust and love, that's why he's saying, now I wonder if you can you see his face as he's saying this, would he just be glum, peace be to you? Or would his arms be out to all of them and say, peace, it's okay, the panic's over, I'm here now. That's what he'd be like, he'd be smiling at them, why, because he loves them, they'd be shocked, they're all the joys, at the floors, he's there with them. He'd be approachable. You can imagine all of a sudden what's happening here and then the absolute joy of seeing him there. Peace to you. Now, Thomas missed the whole event. And you ask us, why did he miss the whole event when these wonderful things that happened to the ten? Where was Thomas? For eight days. Well, maybe, can I give him maybe a few possible reasons for this? Could he have been so upset so depressed, so broken-hearted, and maybe even felt let down by God. And there are Christians that feel let down by God. Can I confess this? I don't think there's one Christian I've ever known in life that one time or another has not felt down by God, let down by God. It's only when sometimes you get to heaven that God gives us the reason sometimes. He doesn't have to answer here. He just says, one more step. Please trust me now? Just one more step. One hour, can you trust me for this hour? For this moment, can you still trust me? That's what he says. Just by little steps, he says. He'll even put up with that. But Thomas, maybe he was so brokenhearted, he just, he just had to go for a walk about it. He just couldn't be there. You know, sometimes when people die, sometimes a family member can be there. And sometimes they can't be there. I've often thought when I've been there over the years that they can't be there sometimes, not because they're cowards necessarily, not because they don't love the person who's dying. It's because they have an overwhelming love and they're overwhelmed with sorrow because they love that person so much. They can't bear to see them suffer like this or to lose them like this. I've always respected people like that. My mother was like that. I, I didn't realize how much she loved dad. She just couldn't be there. I was there in the bed with him. She just couldn't be there. Why? Although she never, they never really showed emotion to each other because that's what it was like in those days. And uh, a peck on a cheek, well, that was really racy in those days. But because she loved him so much. <coughs> what I and my sister didn't see is that we didn't realize how much they loved each other. That was the issue. Thomas was like this. He just couldn't be there, he couldn't take it. He had to get time out, go for a walkabout. Maybe secondly, he could have been blaming himself for not having the courage as a fearful man, for not being there when the Savior was crucified. They just watched from afar. They were, they were running away. I don't blame for that, let me tell you. I'd probably be the same. Maybe you feel regrets. Oh, the time I've, I've had men, especially men, that say I should have treated my wife better, Steve. At that point, one man only said to me recently, "No, she's had it hard with me. She's had it hard with me. I haven't shown her the affection I should have done. She's taken it for granted." The end of life is no, like I said, no place to have regrets. It really isn't. Maybe he was saying, why wasn't I there? I love him so much. Everything says inside, I should be there. But I was also frightened and scared. And all he's ever done is love me. And all he's done things I've never seen, words I've never heard before. I know he's something special. And I still was such a coward. I listened to my fear. I couldn't even stand beside him when they were doing that to him. In 1904, there was a man called William Borden. I don't know if you know him. If you go to America, in Chicago, there's a famous Borden Dairy Estate, which is still there today. And, um, and he was a multi-millionaire, a young man. His family were loaded. he be billionaires today. His parents gave him a trip around the world when he was a young man, traveling through Asia, Middle East, and Europe. And it gave Borden, put this man, Borden, William Borden, a great burden for the world's hurt and people, and those who were lost. Writing home, he said this to his family, they didn't like this. he's he gonna take over the business, lovely wife, fantastic kid, great life. He said this, I'm gonna give my life to prepare for the mission field, dear mum and dad. They hated that, because he had other plans, they thought he was stolen life away. When he made this decision, he wrote in the back of his Bible two words, from now on, no reserves for Jesus. Not holding any back. Really. Tinning down high-paid jobs after graduation from Yale University, he entered two more words in his Bible, despite great opposition from everybody he knew. No retreats anymore for Jesus. I will not back off in front of any man or woman no matter what they do to me. Completing his studies at a Bible seminary called Princeton Seminary, it's still there today, Borden then sailed to China to work with Muslims, the most difficult people he thought on the planet to witness to. Stopping first at Egypt for some preparation and acclimatization. It was while he, he was there that he was struck down with cerebral meningitis. It's difficult to be treated then, It was a certain death in 1904. He died within a month. He died alone on the quayside. All he had was a rucksack, spiked a multi-millionaire, small case, and his coat wrapped around him as he died on the stone with his case as as a pillow. That's all he did. And some would say, What a waste of a life for a man with such great potential. He had a life ahead of him. He had everything in the world on his fingertips. But that was not in God's plan. Where was God when he just let him die on a quayside, with by alone, with everybody around him? His body was there for over three days before anybody moved him. You know what? In his Bible, he wrote, literally, just half a day before he actually went unconscious. He said this under the words no reserves, no retreat, he's written these words for the Lord no matter what in life. No regrets. No regrets. What a man of God is this. You know what? He was only in his early 20s. put him to shame. Maybe 30 before a close. Could Thomas have felt alone, rejected, betrayed? And we can all feel it when we lose someone close. He was certainly in no mood to socialize. He didn't want to talk about what had gone on. The disciples wanted to talk over and over again. I can't believe this happened. I can't believe this is to him. He didn't want any of that. He just wanted to get away from all this. He didn't want to even think about it. It upset him so much because he loved the Lord so much. And when he eventually returned after his eight-day walkabout, he found the disciples in buoyant mood, saying, Jesus has appeared. He's come in this very room. He stood there on that spot. We held him, we kissed him, we fell at his feet. And Thomas is saying, you're off your head. You haven't got a clue. You're going nuts, you are. You haven't got a clue. Unless I touch his finger, my finger in his palms, Unless I thrust my wrist into his side. There's no way I'm gonna believe him. So he's not a man who's easily foolish, this man. Isn't it strange sometimes you say things and God says, you know, I've taken note of that? And it can come up in a sermon, it can come up in a Bible study, it can come up in different ways. Sometimes non-Christians can tell you things that God wants you to know. And he says, I've heard that. Here's the answer. Now get on with it. Exactly what would happen in here. As soon as he said this, Jesus appeared. What a shock that must have been. Can I just stop there and say, why was Thomas not with the rest of them? It's because he had the greater love than the rest of them. He just couldn't cope with his grief because he loved the Lord so much. Sometimes the greater the love in life you have for somebody, the greater the hurt when they leave you. He was not doubting thomas he was loving thomas <coughs> what will the lord tenetum he's already met with them in verse 27 he meets with this man no doubt comes right beside him and he doesn't rebuke him saying where were you at the foot of the cross where were you for eight days where were you feeling sorry for yourself he doesn't say that he could have said all those things jesus knows his heart and jesus treats him Gently. He's gentle, it says our Lord. He's kind, he's meek. He doesn't have to shout at this man. He just has to love him more and show how much he loves him. And he tolerates, he, he even tolerates his doubts. That's how tolerant the Savior is with us sometimes. He was gentle with him. He knew under the greatest stress and disappointment. We often go back to our base nature. That's what we often do. And Thomas is exactly the same what we're really like. And he was a natural pessimist and, and he was disappointed. And the truth, no matter what, could not affect him at this point. He had to touch the Saviour. Unless, unless, unless. And we carefully note that Jesus here, on other occasions, had to work hard to convince the disciples that he was going to rise from the dead. They all had a lack of faith. They all had doubts. Not one of them, including the Lord's own family, had believed he, was, he would rise from the dead. And these men and women were not gullible religious followers of Christ. No. They wanted to see for themselves. They were with him for a three-year period, but they still had to believe for themselves. They had to see. They had to encourage their own souls. And verse 28 as a close. What does Thomas do? He walks, walks over to Jesus and Jesus offers himself. How gracious is this? He could have said, "Thomas, trust me or leave me." There's a the door. And there, he offers himself. He condescends and says, "Here you are, son. Touch me." And even at that point, Thomas gingerly touches him. He says, "Young, you heard about the spear in my side, didn't you? It broke my heart. You know that. You know that, Thomas." Some said, Yeah. He said, Here you are. He took his clothes away. Thrust it in there as well. Touch me. I'm real to you. Come on, do it. And Thomas did. He wanted to be sure this is the real Saviour. <laughs> this is the real McCoy. <laughs> and he did. What did he do then? You can see the disciples, absolutely silent. They would have backed off. This was between two men. Nobody else was there. Come to Thomas. It's just between him and his Lord. Jesus is with him. Come on, do it. Do it. He dares him, and he does it. What does Thomas do then? Whole mood change. And all pessimism can change in a moment called hope. It changes. Hope underrates everything. It's underrated thing. A virtue. Hope comes in. Pessimism and doubts go out within a second. I've seen it when I've seen people die, I've seen people scared, petrified. Uh, one of my deacons was tossing and turning And his sister said, Will you come in near the half of 11 at night? Ken's, he said, Ken's soul is disturbed. This man, although he was a, an old deacon in my church, had done many wrong things in his life. And even as a Christian, <coughs> He'd done wrong things. And at that point, he was weak. He was physically weak. He was mentally weak. I went in at half eleven one night and he says, Steve, I'm so scared, I don't know whether I'm saved. This is a guy that's been in battles in World War II. Seeing men die all around him. He said, i I'm sorry. I just don't feel God here. I just don't feel God here. And I got in a bed next to him, he was six foot two. I got in a bed next to him. his chest his head is on my shoulder and he was crying and i was crying with him and i said well yeah but being justified means it's got nothing to do with you to do with god you're never more or less justified than the day you were born again i said if you're not born again say lord save me now if you are saved then listen to this passage of scripture and i read romans 8 28 that nothing in life or death no, any other creature, and they said, That's you, can be able to separate you from the love of Christ. That's the promise. That's got nothing to do with your feelings or fears. That's his promise. He, he holds you. on to you. We barely hold on to him. That's the issue. As soon as he, he grasped this, all fear went. He just relaxed, and within half an oh. hour, he'd gone, gone to his Lord. Because hope is more powerful. Than even death, because love is more powerful than death. That's what happened to Thomas here. He loved Jesus. You know Charles Adam Spurgeon? Well, my favourite preacher. Great Baptist preacher, died 1892 in January. When he built the Metropolitan Tabernacle, this young man, barely in his 20s, a bit older now, he said this at the end of his sermon. You'll see the same love for Christ here. He said, I would propose that the subject of the ministry of this house, in front of ten and a half thousand people at all, as long as this platform shall stand, as long as this house shall be frequented by worshippers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ and him alone. I'm never ashamed to have I myself a Calvinist. I do not hesitate to take the name Baptist. <clears throat> But if I am asked, what is my creed, I reply, it is Jesus, with everything I am, everything I have. My venerated predecessor, Dr. Gill, did a great systematic theology. He left a the theological heritage admirable and excellent in its way, but the legacy to which I would pin myself. God help me as long as there's breath in my body is one man, Jesus, 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 who is the arm and substance of the gospel, who is himself all theology, the incarnation of every precious truth. And ladies and gentlemen, I love him because he first loved me. Wow you don't hear preaching like that today, do you? What happened to Thomas? This pessimist who became a believer. He went to India as he all split up after Pentecost. He started a church in, Eastern, in, in the Madras, Eastern India today. You know, today, there's lots of Christianity in Eastern India, come from just one quiet, timid man. It was one of the fastest growing churches in the ancient world. How did Thomas end his days? Well, he was persecuted as an older man. Mobs ran after him. Didn't Jesus say, as they, will treat, as they treated me, so will they will treat you. And eventually he was grabbed by a mob and ironically he was thrust through with a spear. You can imagine being on the floor with a mob around him, rejoicing that they got one of the leaders. Of the apostolic band. You know, I guarantee Thomas is on the floor as he was dying, thinking, you know what, I'm going to be seeing him again soon. But a short few moments, this is not a nice place to be. This is painful. Everybody's rejoicing at my death. Oh, but they don't realize they're now releasing me to be with him. I'm a more than conqueror through him. Let's sing our last hymn. It's a lovely hymn written by Spafford. The ratio Spafford, what a name that is. He's actually buried on Mount of Olives, not far from Robert Maxwell. Strange enough, there was a Jewish part and a non-Jewish part. And um, as you know, he lost his daughters in a, a sea tragedy. His wife telegraphed back and said, "I am only one left." He went into a study, broken hearted. And in, when you get days like this, you either you're crushed or you grow. You grow, you grow, or you go. He went into a study and said, no matter what happens, it is well with my soul. I'll trust him. I admire this man. Let's Let's sing this lovely hymn.